On July 30th of 2016, a skydiver by the name of Lute Aikens jumped out of a plane flying at 25,000 feet. That's quite a jump. What made the jump newsworthy was that Luke was attempting to be the first person in history to jump from a plane and successfully land in a net at that distance below. I'll speak a little bit more to that in a minute. When he jumped out of the plane, he could not even see the landing net. It wasn't until he was considerably lower that he could find it. But he adjusted it once he saw it and maneuvered in position, and at five seconds before impact, he flips over, looks up at the sky, hoping he lands where he was aiming. Sounds pretty scary. Now, this gentleman has taught Navy SEALs uh, about high-altitude high skydiving. He's taught many others. But I'm going to tell you one more thing about this jump. He did it without a parachute. Some of you may remember the story. I watched it on YouTube this week. It was, uh, it was fascinating to watch. It takes about two minutes. Um, it's quite a fascinating. But what I thought about in this was what was going through his mind at the decision point that he had to jump out of the aircraft. That's got to be a tough decision for <clears throat> anybody that's going to parachute out of an aircraft. I've been known to jump at least two feet without a parachute. But jumping from 25,000 feet or from any altitude without a parachute just seems dumb. I would not call him Luke Aikens. I would call him idiot, probably. But nevertheless, he did. And he stuck the landing. But that decision... That point of possible dilemma, do I do it? I've put all my money into this, my effort into this, I've designed the landing so that even the net will slow down in process when I hit it, so that it will just gently lower me to the ground. He had four big cranes on either side of the net, all four corners of the net to catch him. But that dilemma, is somebody gonna push him? Is he really going to jump? What's going through his mind? I wonder if this is maybe what Joseph felt when he had to make a decision regarding what he was going to do about the fact that Mary was pregnant and he knew that the child wasn't his. Mary and Joseph were pledged to each other. It was more than what we call a modern-day engagement because in the Jewish laws at that time, a betrothal or what we might have called engagement during that process, meant that you were going to get married. It's already been sealed and signed. You just haven't enacted upon it yet. And if either one of them, if Joseph had impregnated someone else, or if Mary was to get pregnant by someone else, which in Joseph's mind, this is apparently what happened, the Jewish law said that she would be punished to death. Mary was pregnant. The baby was not Joseph's. Joseph is sitting there just like Luke, Akins. Do I jump or do I not? What will I do? 
What should I do? He considers some of his options, and he realizes that he's got a couple of options, and he could do follow some of those options in a pretty shamelessly way, and, and everything might turn out okay for him and Mary, but um, they would not be getting married because he had the legal right to issue a statement of divorcement at that time. He probably considered what we call the AAA approach when uh, somebody has an unwanted pregnancy. Adopt, accept, or abandon. He didn't want to do any of these. What should he do? What would he do? He had decided to go ahead and divorce her, but then he had a dream. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. She's been conceived in her. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord just approaches him and says, don't be afraid. How comforting that must be. And God says, don't be afraid. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We just talked with the kids about what's in a name. There's two names for our Lord already. But it's decision time. What will Joseph do? Will he trust his instincts and go with divorcing Mary? Or will he follow what the angel of the Lord said and take her and be with her and raise the baby Jesus? When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him just as he was instructed, the name of Jesus, which means Savior. Why had God chosen Joseph? If you look at the genealogies in Luke, and the one in Matthew about how Jesus came into the world, not how he came into the world, but what his genealogy looks like, it's interesting that both genealogies have to do with Joseph. The one in Matthew ends with Joseph. And the one in Luke begins with Joseph and goes all the way back to Adam, who was called the Son of God because God had created him. Not that Adam was the same as Jesus was, but being the first man, a descendant of his, was going to raise the actual Son of God. Why Joseph? Well, Scripture tells us in this passage that he was a righteous man and he followed the law. Now, none of us are perfect, and I don't think he was a perfect person, but he was a righteous man. And what that probably meant to God in that time was that he followed the basics of the law, which was love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, 
and love others as yourself. Joseph had that character about him. Yet, he was probably sinful and needed a, he was sinful and needed a Savior. And now he was going to raise the Savior. He was a person who was able to show mercy rather than revenge. I got a hunch, if I was in this situation, I would probably seek a little bit of revenge for what had happened. I'd be angry. But you know, last week we talked about uh, the peace of God and the God of peace. And let your gentle spirit be made known to all. And the context of that passage in the fourth chapter of Philippians The Philippians were wrestling with persecution, and they were being torn apart. And there was probably this sense of wanting to get back at those that were persecuting them. And Paul says, make your gentle spirit be known to them. Do something different. And Joseph was like this. He was able to show mercy that rather than revenge. He took Mary and was compassionate and showed all the mercy possible to her while taking her as his wife, sparing her from, sparing her from the shame and possible death. Another quality of his character was he was all in. It wasn't just about, well, I'll do this, but we'll see what's in it next. We'll see how this goes and what's, what's in it next for me. No, Joseph was able to say, Hey, God, I'm all in. I'm going to take her as my wife. This illegitimate child thing with the community and everything else, nobody has to be concerned about that. I'm all in. I'm going to be, take her as my wife. I'll be her husband. Now, God hadn't spoken prophecy for about 400 years. He hadn't, Joseph had not heard from God personally before, but he heard from God in a dream. And God had spoken. And so he took a leap of faith. Not a jump out of an aircraft, but a leap of faith. It was risky. He had been in a dilemma. But he obeyed and said, Lord, I'm all in. Whatever this means. Baby is born. Joseph is napping again and he has another dream. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Herod's going to search for the child and kill him. Does he trust Jesus? I mean, does he trust the Lord? (laughs) Yes, he does. Next verse. (laughs) So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now Joseph may have found a way to be comfortable by taking Mary as his wife. It seemed to be a good solution. Now he's being told, you got to get out of town, guy. you got to take this baby and you got to take Mary. You guys got to run down to Egypt. He was willing to leave what was comfortable to follow what the Lord had told him. We look at his reliability, his faithfulness. Dream three, 
chapter 2, verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go back to Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are now dead. What does he do? Gets up and goes back to Israel. Now somewhere along the line, upon returning towards Israel, Joseph is napping again and has a fourth dream. We don't know when it is, but we know that the angel appeared to him in a dream again and said, So he got up, took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, having been warned in a dream, that's dream four, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Joseph was not only reliable and able to live up to the task, Joseph also was able to follow through and be faithful to the task. If you're a manager and going to hire somebody that's going to work for you and you've laid out the tasks, most of us would want to hire somebody that will be faithful to complete the task. Not just set it all up, not just get it rolling and then leave it alone and let it fall wherever it lies, but will be faithful to complete the task. And Joseph was that kind of person. He was faithful to complete the task. But where did he get that from? How was that developed in him? First, he understood the faithfulness of God. Past promises in the Old Testament were fulfilled, and they were being fulfilled as Matthew unfolds his gospel. And so Joseph probably had to reckon with, if the scriptures have been true in the past, why wouldn't they be true now? Matthew writes, over 12 prophecies of the Old Testament are shown to be fulfilled in Matthew. He's seen God be faithful. So, if God is with me, and I love God with all my heart, I guess I ought to be faithful and follow. And not just follow, but follow through and do all that God had commanded. Secondly, it wasn't just the faithfulness of God, it was the very presence of God. One of the names for Jesus that was given in this passage was Emmanuel. And I think this is one of my favorite lines about our Lord and His birth. Emmanuel. What's in a name? God is with us. God is present. Joseph knew that if he obeyed and followed, that the presence of God would be with him. This seems to be a theme in Matthew, for in he says, Emmanuel, in verse 123, God is with us. And then you read the very last couple of verses in Matthew. And what does it say? This is after the resurrection, before Jesus ascends to the heavens. 
Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When, he, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now listen to this. See if this doesn't sound familiar. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew begins with Emmanuel, God with us as the name for our Lord. And he ends Matthew by saying, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That means from the time that we receive Jesus Christ and the time that we leave this earth and take up residence in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ, God is with us. We have His presence. And thirdly, let's go back to the names. What's in the name? The salvation of God. Jesus equals Savior. One of our kids, I think it was one of the uh, card grave kids, yes. I couldn't think of your last name for a minute. Okay. Um, but I knew who it was. Okay. <laughs> he said Savior. Well, I was trying to look it up and tell the kids what it was. He said Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus was going to be Joseph's Savior, stepson, dying on the cross for his stepfather. And not only his stepfather, but you and I and every one of us that have believed in Jesus Christ. Jesus left his comfort zone. Jesus showed mercy. Jesus was all in to the point of crucifixion. He was faithful to the end but sinless, which was required for the payment of our death. Jesus was born of a virgin, which meant that he was fully, fully human, but perfect in all ways without sin, so that he could pay for our sins, an adequate sacrifice. He was fully human for that sacrifice to be effective. But he was fully God, which meant that he had the power to see that that payment was accomplished. Only Jesus could do that. If you've been attending Sunday school the last several weeks, we've been encouraged to write stories about ourselves and remember maybe our first encounter with God or thinking about God or some aspect of God. I don't like to write, but Leslie made us write this morning. And like a good, obedient student, I, I left my page blank for a little while. Then I looked around. Everybody's writing. I'm the only one not writing. So I started to write something down. Five years old. Lived in Los Angeles was at a neighbor's house being babysat, four or five, I don't know what the age was, but it was very, like these kids down here this morning. And there were stairs in that apartment. But they went down instead of up. I couldn't figure that out. 
Why are the stairs going down? I walk into the main floor of the apartment, and the stairs are going down, not up. We don't have basements in Los Angeles. We don't need them. But in this house, there were stairs that were going down. And so I asked the little girl that was playing with me, and, and we were having a good time together, and, and I'm, going, I'm really intrigued by these stairs. And she says, don't go down there. Don't go down there. Mommy says it looks like hell. You're going to burn forever if you go down there. <laughs> okay. Well, being rebellious at age five, where do you think I did? I started down those stairs. And I could hear her mommy say, it's like hell down there. If you keep going, you're going to burn forever in hell. I was frightened. I ran home crying to my mom. And I told her what had happened, and she held me. And she said, Christians don't burn in hell. They go to heaven. But you should probably stay out of her basement. <laughs> Salvation means we're going to go to heaven. That's what Jesus paid the price for. We come to communion to remember that. That Jesus has paid the price. That just before he was crucified on the cross, he had supper with his disciples. And he shared with them some bread. And he broke it, which meant that his body was going to be broken for them. And then he took some fruit of the vine and shared it with them and said, this represents the blood that I'm going to shed for you in the morning. Paying the price for your salvation. Jesus was all in. I invite you to be all in with Jesus. If those who are going to serve communion would come at this time, we'll enjoy taking communion together. First Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> 